would like to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Proverbs uh, today for our 15th uh, week in Proverbs. We'll be in uh, chapter 17, verse 1. We'll start in chapter 17, verse 1. If Bill and Melinda Gates can't make a marriage work, what hope is there for the rest of us? That's the headline of an article I read. Uh, So many of you have probably heard or seen, but yes, Bill Gates and his wife are getting a divorce after 27 years of marriage. Uh, Bill Gates, who for a long time was the richest man in the world, now he's like number four or something, was unable to make his marriage work. This comes right on the heels of the world's current richest man alive, Jeff Bezos, I think that's how you say his name, CEO, founder of Amazon, also getting a divorce from his wife. So the article I read goes on to wonder about why these kinds of marriages work, despite the fact that they have all these resources at their disposal. It mentions the strain of the pandemic on many couples, mentions people are finding their authentic selves and that the people we marry are not the people we divorce because people change. mentions lack of stigma around divorce. And also mentions especially that that many couples no longer know what to do when they enter midlife. Right? The, the, The excitement of marriage wears off. Raising kids, right? Responsibly raising kids is over. You sent them off and now you're just left with each other. And, and really, what this article kind of described is that there's no more mission to be accomplished, and many couples call it quits. This is not a sermon about having a successful marriage. Although we want successful marriages, and our prayer is that successful marriages are a byproduct of this. I didn't plan on, on teaching about marriage and family today. It just kind of happened. On Mother's Day, you can, you can buy books. Go to a bookstore, buy a book on healthy marriages and read it. Okay? No, what we're interested in is not successful marriages for success's sake, but marriages for mission's sake. And that mission is to spur one another on toward Christ. To care for one another's holiness. To love the word together. And to make disciples of each other. So what hope is there for the rest of us? No, you don't need a billion dollars. You don't need a billion dollars to make marriage work. Many of you here today can attest to that. Thankfully, God gives us the ingredient we need. And he gives it to us in wisdom. Wisdom that is the fruit of a right relationship with God to help us live on mission for God. He gives us wisdom that is the fruit of a right relationship with God to live on mission for God. And that mission happens in a number of ways, but what Proverbs teaches us is that that mission happens in a home carefully cultivated by an environment of wisdom. So look at chapter 17, verse 1 with me. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. 
when we read about marriage or family or the home in Proverbs, what Proverbs is primarily concerned about is the kind of environment we cultivate. And it starts with an environment of grace. An environment of grace. Better is a dry morsel with quiet. I'm, I'm reminded here of, of Russell Moore. And, and I've read before or heard him talk before about how when he first got married to his wife, they were poor. I mean, dirt poor. They were so poor that they had to eat mayonnaise sandwiches. I would just rather starve. But, but this, mayonnaise sandwiches are better than a house full of feasting with strife. So a house full of, of tension or pent-up frustration, or backbiting, resentfulness, bitterness. All of those things happen, why? They happen as a result of a lack of grace. That's why we read in chapter 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love Covers all offenses. Listen, strife happens when you just can't let things go. When you are bitter toward your spouse because they're not meeting your expectations. Or when you're resentful toward your kids because they're not grateful enough. Right? This is how strife happens. Grace happens in a home where forgiveness is celebrated. Grace happens in a home where forgiveness is celebrated. It, it covers all offenses. When, when forgiveness happens, the offense is buried. It's not brought up again. It's not used against the other person. Grace doesn't keep a tally. And this is so important because grace is foundational. Without a deep understanding of grace, our marriages and our families will never attract and point to Christ. Without a deep understanding of grace, our marriages and our families will never attract people to or point one another toward Jesus. And grace happens when we understand Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say... I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Solomon asked that question to say no one. Grace happens when we first see ourselves not as sinned against, but as sinner. This is hard because we don't like to see ourselves this way. We like to be the victim. You know, when you watch like nature documentaries, there, in, in every single one, without fail, there's always the scene where the wolf is chasing the goat, the little baby goat, or, or the lion is chasing the little buffalo calf, right? And the worst documentaries show the wolf capturing the goat. And like, this documentary is awful. The best ones show the little guy getting away. We like the little guy. We root for him. But, but grace happens when, when we see ourselves not as a little guy, as a little victim, but as the wolf. When we see ourselves as just as much as the cause as the victim. This is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. Paul wasn't saying, right, like, 
I'm now declaring myself the chief of sinners and other people have sinned less qualitatively or quantitatively than me. No, Paul's attitude should be all of ours. We should all see ourselves as the chief of sinners. In other words, the worst sinners that we know should be us. We should be well acquainted with sin and how sin operates in our hearts. And the reason that's important is because it's when we see ourselves as the chief of sinners that we're primed to receive grace and primed to give it. We take the worst offense our spouses or our kids commit and we turn it and say, this is nothing to how deeply and how daily I offend Christ. And yet He still died for me and loves to forgive me Deeply and daily. Paul Tripp, uh, he wrote a book called on marriage called What Did You Expect? And his whole thesis is what, what did you expect? Did you expect a happily ever after? Because guess what? There's no such thing because you have two sinners now committing to live life with one another. But he wrote this. When the shadow of the cross hangs over our marriage, we live and relate differently. We are no longer afraid to look at ourselves. We are no longer surprised by our sin. We no longer have to work to present ourselves as righteous. We say goodbye to finger-pointing and self-excusing. We abandon our record of wrongs. We settle issues quickly. And we do all these things because we know that everything we need to confess has already been forgiven. And what is needed now for every new step we will take has already been supplied. We can live in the liberating light of humility and honesty, a needy and tender sinner living with a needy and tender sinner, no longer defensive and no longer afraid, together growing near to one another as we grow to be more like him. And everything that we've covered in Proverbs, everything, the the self-control, our words and the tongue, how we work and our wealth and our possession comes together and grace becomes the chief operator of all of these things so that we live and relate differently. This is an environment of grace. I think we're all familiar with the generation wars they could make a show right if if you were to you know google stuff related to this they could make a show called everybody hates millennials because everybody does boomers hate millennials are always dunking on millennials and and gen z the generation after millennials dunk on millennials too like if you go on and like search like what they're putting on like tiktok and stuff like they trash millennials pretty hardcore Strangely enough, nobody talks about Gen X. You know, you, you strange guys. Like, we're all on, like, it's like boomers, Gen Z, and millennials are all on the field, like, duking it out, and Gen X is just on the sidelines, just drinking lemonade. Nobody cares about Gen X. Again, we like to blame everybody else for our problems, when in reality, we shouldn't be focusing so much on the shortcomings of each generation as we should on discipling them. 
we shouldn't focus on the shortcomings of each generation so much as we should discipling them. And when we're cultivating an environment of grace is when we're primed to cultivate, secondly, an environment of discipleship. An environment of discipleship. We're all familiar with this cultural maxim, right? Spare the rod, spoil the child. It's not actually in Scripture, but it sounds a lot like what we hear in Proverbs, right? Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Chapter 13, verse 24. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Chapter 22, verse 15. It's hard to talk about discipline these days because there's so many different philosophies. Right? There's so many. There's, there's as many discipline parenting philosophies as there are like cereal in a cereal aisle. And so I'm not here to teach you disciplining methods. Each family is different and each child is different. Suffice it to say that the Bible takes a favorable view of discipline and and you, again, can find many helpful books on discipline and, and take them for what you will. What we want to learn today from Scripture is, is we want to learn for discipline is discipline for discipleship's sake. We don't just want obedience out of our kids. Obey me. We don't just want that. We want to make disciples out of them. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Chapter 14, verse 26. We want our children to learn not just respect, but refuge. The world knows how to discipline. Plenty of non-believers know how to discipline their kids. What makes a Christ-centered home is a discipling home. We want to make disciples out of our kids, and we want to make disciples out of each other. Listen to Proverbs 12, verse 4. I love this one. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Here's why I love this. The most important and distinguishing mark of a king is his crown. The crown is what makes him a king. So here... The wife is what makes or breaks the husband. And I want to stop and make a few observations here. First, this is precisely why I like to say, even though we might have the right theological convictions, we still grow in them. Right? Even though we might be in the right place with Scripture, right place theologically, we still grow in them. So, for instance, I believe the correct theological conviction is complementarianism. Husband and wives are equal in dignity but distinguished in roles. However, that has been abused to belittle women and wives and to put unfair restrictions or expectations on them when in reality, look at where Scripture places women as crowns. Secondly, think about what responsibility this is. Our culture wants women with dignity but without responsibility. I'm not responsible for no man. 
Women are tired of taking care of men. But that a wife has so much power so as to completely make or break a man, a husband, is massive responsibility and highly dignifying. Your husband may or may not be the man you want him to be. Your spouse may or may not be who you want them to be. But if they are going to choose to live in sin or misery, let it be despite your own diligent godliness. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exhortations. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let that be true of your spouse. And husbands, I'm talking about women mostly here, but husbands, don't be a burden to your wife's discipleship. You won't be a faithful disciple unless your wife is also by your side. We want to disciple one another. Help your spouse's discipleship by practicing discipleship yourself. Cultivate an environment of discipleship. My father-in-law, Chuck, great guy. He's a basketball guy. I married into a basketball family. I'm a soccer guy, so I've really had to learn the ropes of basketball. Uh, We... Celebrate March Madness, like it's a national holiday in, in William's household. So Chuck grew up playing basketball, and he even coached with Bob Knight, right? Really interest, interesting uh, story. Coached with Bob Knight. So Bob Knight is not just one of the most celebrated coaches in basketball, but like in sports. You know, like he's, he's celebrated because, you know, he's just a great coach, led Indiana to, to victory, all that kind of stuff. I don't know much about him, but I bet, I know who Bob Knight is, all right? I don't know, I can't tell you how many trophies he's won. He's a successful guy. But I bet, when I mention Bob Knight, that you not only think of his coaching, but his anger as well. Probably just as famous as his trophies were his tantrums. I'm afraid that's what our culture sees of professing Christians. They might see our beliefs, But perhaps even more loudly, they see our anger. We don't disciple people to Christ from anger. We disciple people to Christ from joy. So finally, we want to cultivate an environment of joy. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Chapter 10, verse 28. One of the distinguishing marks between morality, like just good morals or being an upright person or good person, and actual Christ-likeness is joy. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Philippians 4 4. Be joyful always. 1 Thessalonians 5 16. 
This comes out in places like Proverbs 15, 17. It's similar to what we read in, in chapter 17. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. You see, in our families, in our homes, kids pick up on what brings us joy. And we teach them not just by instruction, but by example. And if our joy isn't in Christ when we're at our lowest, eating raw broccoli, then our kids will learn to look for joy somewhere else. D.A. Carson, uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, he's a professor at a divinity school, he once said that, I've learned over the years that my students, they may pick up on what I teach them, but they mostly learn what I'm passionate about. We can get, get mad at newer generations leaving the church. They're just lost and hopeless. But we have to ask ourselves if we've simply imparted rule following or true joyful obedience. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. Chapter 17, verse 6. True joyful discipleship happens as we, just, we prize one another as the generations prize each other. And guess where joy begins? Joy begins at grace. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Grace is the soil where joy grows. Grace not only changes our interactions with one another, it changes our disposition toward God. It's in casting our sins on Christ that we find a God who is eager and willing to forgive, who shows us grace long before we ever asked for it. That kind of grace changes discipleship from a have-to to a get-to. When we understand grace, grace promotes discipleship that is Joyful. By wisdom, a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. It's Proverbs 24, 3-4. The reason we want an environment of these things the reason we want to cultivate an environment of grace, an environment of discipleship, an environment of joy, is that our house might be filled with treasures, riches. Treasures and riches of Christ. The reason we want to cultivate this kind of environment is to promote the gospel. We want to promote grace so that we promote the cross. We want to promote discipleship to promote the gospel. We want to promote joy to promote Christ. That's why we want to cultivate this environment that the gospel would be central, that the gospel would be promoted. So this sermon writes about marriage and family, husbands, wives, and kids. What about everybody else? The church, 
The church has a role in discipling kids, right? This discipleship primarily happens in the home, right? You can't drop off your kids at youth group and not discipleship them at home. But the church comes alongside families to disciple their children in the faith. Disciple one another. Old men, disciple younger men. Older women, disciple younger women. Invite to breakfast. Invite for coffee. Invite into your homes. Disciple couples. Disciple singles. Let our aim to be to spur one another on toward Christ. And I want to close with this question. Do you know true joy in Christ? Are you truly His disciple? Because you can be today. Repent and believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we don't need a billion dollars. We don't need a house of feasting. We don't need fill in the blank. We don't need all these things, Lord. You provide everything that we need. By your spirit, you provide it in wisdom. God, you provide all of these things because you are shouting at us constantly, look to Christ, look to my son. He is your rest. He is your grace. He is your joy. He is you go where you when you fail. He is where you go when you're joyful. He is my answer for you. You're shouting at us and you give us, Lord, grace and discipleship and and joy that we would all point one another more and more toward Christ. So, Father, make us deeply Christ-centered. If we're mothers, may we mother people to Christ, mother our kids to Christ. If we're fathers, help us to father our families to Christ. If we're in the church, let us disciple one another toward Christ. God, your grace abounds. Fill us with your grace that your grace would abound through us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.